Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, church, and uh, what a delight to be with you. Uh, today, this is kind of maybe a fitting for an Indiana a group of people. Uh, this is where we now entered into the final four. We've entered into the final four. What I mean by that is we're in the final uh, four Sundays of our series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you would open your Bibles to Matthew 27. Um, we began in December with the royal lineage and the royal birth of Christ. It's been eight months now and uh, eight months of watching the gospel. By the way, the gospel is Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is the one that is turning lives inside out and upside down. And we've been eight months of watching him do that. We're in chapter 27 today. Um, today's text, it's interesting because there's not a, a single word that is uttered by Jesus in the text that we're in, verses 27 through 44. Not a single word, but know this, there are a whole lot of others speaking. And uh, I've titled this The Gospel Contempt because uh, though not one word from Jesus, there's contempt being thrown all over the place at Jesus. Uh, We've slowed down in our series on purpose here Um, in last month and this month so we can spend some more time with these. And I think Matthew really wants us to see something about Jesus in this. He's quiet in all of the contempt. And uh, we're going to take a look at it and see what flows out of it. We're coming out of chapter 26. Chapter 26, if you've been gone on summer break, uh, uh, the final Passover supper was in 26, Gethsemane, where Jesus settled it with the Father, Uh, Not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Uh, Jesus, uh, Judas, and uh, a large temple uh, police show up and uh, gather Jesus, and they take him before kind of a corrupt Jewish supreme court. Um, Peter denies knowing Christ three times at the end of the chapter. We then, in chapter 27, Jesus is taken to Pilate. Uh, Only a Roman authority can give the thumbs up or thumbs down on a capital punishment case. So it has to come from a Roman authority, and that's Pilate, who's the prefect or the governor of the area. And the whole Pilate thing goes down with Barabbas being released and Jesus being uh, delivered over to be crucified. So we're going to see the contempt here. I think Matthew wants us to see it from five different directions uh, falling around here. Let's dive in. We'll begin in verse 27. By the way, for those who are taking notes on your sermon notes page, just kind of know this, uh, maybe draw a line midway, halfway through your page. The top part you'll be using here as we go through these verses. The bottom part, uh, I have five things, comments to add to it, just so you know when you get down to the end and you're like, oh, I'm out of space. Uh, I love you. I'm just trying to help you. Well, let's begin with the five items in the text. Five items in the text, and the first is the contempt from the battalion. Let me read verses 27 to 31. Then soldiers of the governor, in other words, these are Roman soldiers, 
took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him, the whole cohort before him, and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before Jesus, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. Then they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe put on his clothes, and led him away to crucify him. We have this little scene here. Matthew is the master of condensing things, and and in this we have this scene here. I think this first group of people he's showing us in their response to Christ during this, uh, and it's the battalion. And Pilate delivers Jesus over. This battalion, this group of Roman soldiers, is leading the process. Know this. Once Pilate declared Uh, crucifixion for Jesus and handed him over to be crucified, Jesus is now 100% solely in the authority of the Roman government. It is completely out of the the Jewish hands at this point. The crucifixion is fully 100% under the authority of the Roman government and under the movement of the Roman uh, leadership or soldiers. Here we have this battalion. We don't know exactly how many it is. Uh, A crucifixion, when they would lead them off, usually uh, had four men who were trained for the crucifixion portion. There were usually four men that were heading out. There were probably more than that here at this point in time. What do we see them doing? Well, they strip him naked, uh, humiliation. By the way, uh, next Sunday we're going to be at Christ on the cross. This Sunday is about the scene all around Christ. Next Sunday is, is focusing in on Christ on the cross. And in this, uh, at, at the crucifixion, when they put the person up, they were crucified naked. Why would they do that? To do the maximum amount of humiliation possible. And, and here in the process of it, you see that Uh, even going through portions of it. So they strip Jesus naked. They put an old soldier's scarlet robe on him. I get that out because of the other text. It talks about scarlet. The other texts say it's purple. Likely, they did not take one of their own robes, kind of like their Superman cape, if you will, in Roman garb. They probably had one that was in the area left from an uh, older soldier that had been used, so it's purple, it's scarlet. They take it, they put it on Jesus. Uh, Clearly, they're trying to make fun of him. They're mocking him. As a king, can you just imagine he's had the life uh, beaten out of him even to this point so far as, and, and well as moves on here and, and he's just this half-living human at this moment and they continue the mockery with the, the robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. I mean, I just cannot even imagine the pain of that. I have a hard time just like clipping a rose bush, let alone anything like that that would take place. They put a reed in his hand to kind of mock him as though he has like a scepter. Uh, They kneel before him calling out, Hail, King of the Jews! I mean, can you just imagine these rough, gnarly, brutish men who have been trained to torture people and they're all around and, I mean, guys can go to bad places when they're in that kind of situation and it's just all full-out words, mockery going on. The things they must have said, I can't even fathom and I don't think I even want to know, but we know that they were mocking this, calling him king of the Jews in this whole situation. They spit on him. 
By the way, it's interesting. I've had the opportunity over the years to travel a lot of places around the world. And yet in it, one of the things is even in that, uh, there's something about spitting on people that is a universal uh, statement. And is one of the most uh, worst things that, that is done by someone. I mean, you can do a lot of things. You can say words, but when you go and you spit on someone... I mean, your disdain for them, your, your dislike of them, your, the lowliness that they are, it doesn't get much worse than that to be spit on by someone. And Jesus says it's just getting deeper and harder. Uh, he takes a reed, or they take the reed out of his hand, and they just start swacking at his head. Can you imagine? And then they strip the robe off of him. They put his undergarments on, if you want to call it that, at this point in time until they get out to the cross and they lead him away to be crucified. Contempt is at super high levels, friends. There's something about this, and even in these scenes, that we want to move quickly past. There's something about this that even we oftentimes want to try and clean it up a little bit. And I don't want to get over dose on it, but there is something about understanding what Christ went through and the pain of it and the horrificness of it, and I say all that because he stepped in our shoes and took for us what we should have taken. And he didn't get caught in this situation. He went to the situation out of love for you and me, knowing what was coming, taking it all, stepping in our place, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. It's amazing. Matthew consider, con, uh, continues some of the movement, verse 32, and as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink. Jesus mixed with gall, but he tasted it. He would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, by the way, at this point, that statement, Jesus is not dead on the cross, he is up on the cross. Notice how fast Matthew gets there. Matthew is concerned about the things that are happening around at this point in time. Next week in the text, it's all about Jesus on the cross, but right now, it's the things happening around. I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on these things here, because I think Matthew is just putting some pieces together for us to see the conversations taking around. They divided his garment among them, casting lots. Then they, the, the Roman soldiers, sat down and kept watch over him there. Isn't that interesting? That's just kind of an interesting statement that Matthew puts there. They didn't just crucify him and then walked away, at least at this point. They stayed there and take watch. He's letting us so that we know what's going to be happening here in a little bit. But it's interesting that, like, what do they think is going to happen? <laughs> but they're keeping watch over it. That's their job. That's what's supposed to take place. Contempt from the battalion. Next, contempt from the signage. Contempt from the signage. Look at verses 37 and 38. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then Matthew fills in, we'll cover it a little bit more later. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. There's a sign that's put over Jesus' head. Uh, in that day, when someone was crucified, uh, some say that actually while they were going out to the place to be crucified, they would put a sign, like they would have a necklace and a sign that would be on the, on the convicted one who was being, uh, walking, carrying the bar, carrying the cross uh, out, and they would do that so that all the passers-by would be able to know exactly what happened. 
so they would be able to look and understand what they're convicted of. And so here, out on the cross, uh, putting a sign up, uh, I actually don't think that was something unusual to do. I think they're trying to help people understand what's going on. I'll make mention of that in just a second. But there's a sign over. We know from the other texts that they've actually used three languages on this sign. So all three of these languages, there's Hebrew on it, there's Latin on it, and there's Greek on it. Why would they do three languages? They would do three languages because those are the kinds of people, different people coming by. And know this, this is really important to understand. Uh, the crucifixion process was not done to where they would go somewhere and like hidden in a forest somewhere so no one could see what was going on so they couldn't see all the graphicness of it. They actually did it on a main highway. So the, the, the cross and the, with the others, and by the way, people were crucified before Jesus. Uh, so in this process, they would go and they would hang these people on the crosses right on the public highway. And then uh, there would be a sign over there letting them know what's going on so that they could be able to see what's taking place. And just the sign itself has a contempt reality to it. Uh, it's naming who it is. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Uh, but that's actually in the Roman eyes the reason that they're crucifying him is because he's kind of viewed as, at least in, this, in the, the, the mockery and the sham of it all, that's the legal thing they got a hold of to have him crucified, was that he was kind of a political rebel. This is Jesus, king of the Jews, the name written over him. By the way, may I just remind us of Revelation 12, or Revelation 19, verse 12. It says, one day on his head, he will come with many diadems and crowns with a name written that no one knows but himself. Here he is hanging on the cross, and there's his name over his head, but know this, friends, he's going to be coming another day, and he's going to have a name that no one knows. And one of the th interesting things about that Revelation 19 passage is how many people try and figure out what that name is. What a waste of time. I mean, at what point do you miss it? It says no one knows his name but him. <laughs> kind of off track here, but don't you just kind of go, what are you doing with your time, man? <laughs> Battalion, the signage. Three, the contempt from the passers-by. Verses 39 and 40. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Notice their statements. It's, it, it's intriguing because we just, they just made mention of the sign. I've just made mention of there's contempt in the sign with what's taking place over his head. But what they're saying is more than what's on the sign. Look, uh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it, people who are walking by have more knowledge of what Jesus has said than just what's posted over his head. Uh, you said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it. You can't even save yourself. They'd say, if you are the son of God, that means they knew that he had said that he was the Old Testament Messiah, promised Messiah, that he was that one that had come. And they're like, if you are that, then come down from the cross. Notice the intensity of how they're doing it. They're wagging their heads. <laughs> they're shaking their heads. It's one thing to walk by and to kind of make a mockery comment, but this gives, they are fully in on it. I can't do it very well, but it's just, you know, when the whole body's like going in the mockery thing? It's like, ah! 
I mean, that's what's going on. They're just walking by, and they're not making kind of a passing statement. They are making a bold out body in, ah, you think you are, you're such a fool. By the way, can I just make an observation? Because we forget oftentimes right at this point in the time of the gospel story with Jesus on the cross that this is at the end week, uh, end of the week of the Passover. What's the Passover supposed to be about? The Passover was supposed to be about a time, a special time, a time where uh, Israelites and, and, and those Gentiles who understood would come together, would gather together, and would celebrate what God has done in their past. Would celebrate how God, in his grace and his mercy and his mighty power, stepped in and pulled out people who were uh, uh, bound by the Egyptians, by a corrupt, wicked, evil uh, people who were holding them in a situation that they were, and, and, and God came in, and God took them out, and they're supposed to be remembering that, and I just go, and here they are mouthing off. It's like how quick they forget the grace of God in their own history, and even before they're out of town, they're already throwing slingshots of mockery on individuals. Friends, it's just, it's so like us sometimes. We leave church and we get to a roundabout. <laughs> the center where all total depravity comes flying out in the hearts of mankind. Am I right? Circles of debauchery. <laughs> it's all about me first. And then that, we'll stop right there. I'm starting to wag my head. And <laughs> okay, and it's one of those things where it's just say, here they are. They, Passover is not even completed yet. We'll see more of that next Sunday with the next verse as Christ is on the cross. Contempt by the passers-by. Fourth, contempt by the leadership, by the leadership, the Jewish leadership, verses 41 to 43. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. This is the whole kind of representative statement for the Jewish leadership. We have the Romans mocking him. We have sign mocking him. We have Jews, Gentiles, passers-by mocking him. Now we have this Jewish leadership that is mocking him. And know what's taking place here. Look at some of the words. He saved others. By the way, isn't that interesting? They knew that. They knew that that guy who was hanging on the cross had actually done some stunning, stunning, miraculous things to utterly change the lives of people. They knew that. But then they say, but he can't save himself. But may I remind these boys, the story's not over, friend. The story's not over. By the way, and even today, the story's not over. They say, he is the king of Israel. Again, the irony. Let him come down and we will believe him. Know this, he will and most of them won't. 
He trusts God, he does. We just saw that a couple Sundays ago in Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but your will. Let God deliver him now if he desires. Here's the thing. The Father does, but in the Father's time. In the Father's time. For he said, I am the Son of God. And he did, and he is. Interesting what they say. Full contempt is piled out from the spiritual leadership. Fifth, contempt from the rebels. Contempt from the rebels. Verse 44, the last verse for our passage today. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, my English Standard Version and some of the other versions call these guys robbers, thieves. It's kind of a challenge to know exactly what the Greek word means there. I think the New International Version has it better when it calls them rebels. And I say that because in the day there were all kinds of ways to to bring on punishment for things. And and crucifixion was generally not the kind of punishment that was was reserved for your, if you will, your day-to-day robber or thief. There were other things that could be done. Instead, I think it's more likely that the two that are hanging on Christ with the sign over him, by the way, the sign is alluding that Jesus is a rebel rouser, politically. And so the two on the sign, I think that they're more like, uh, they're rebel rousers, politically. Uh, They're more freedom fighters, or maybe, uh, as the Romans would view it, they're terrorists uh, in their day. So many things we could talk about these two next to him, but, uh, or ask even about him, like, what were their actual crimes? What were their stories? Was it possible that these two were actually part of Barabbas's team, that he's now freed? That's an interesting story, if that's possible, and it's possible. But if I can, have you just put on your rebel hat just for a minute, and just for a minute, don't keep it on. One of the things that I think is interesting about this is here you have these two rebels who are being crucified by what is posted as a rebel. And even if you may not be on the same rebel train of what you're doing, you still generally, I would think, rebels have a little bit of respect for other rebels. I mean, it's kind of like, we may not be going for the exact same thing, but you're a rebel, we're rebels, at least there's some level of props to you in it, but not here. I mean, it's so bad that even the two rebels on the side are reviling, if you will, the posted rebel in the middle. Here's what's going on in Matthew. In these verses, I think Matthew is trying to help us see before he narrows the scene in on Christ on the cross. He's wanting us to see the 360 degree view of everything that is going around him. And what is happening around him in it all is contempt. From the two here to the Jewish leadership to the passers-by to the Roman authority. Even the sign. It's contempt all around. The anger and the hatred, the antagonism, the brutality, the rivaling, the contemptuousness that's going on is stunning all around. And why doesn't Jesus just go... 
boom, boom, and whoa. I don't get it. I can't fathom it. Why would he still hang on the cross for such a contemptuous world? It's an amazing, amazing thing. Friends, just as he told Peter he could call legions of angels down and take care of the whole thing, he could have done it on the cross as well. And there he hangs, quiet. And all the contempt around him doesn't throw him off his train, doesn't throw him off the track. We get no sign of him hanging there and bitter. It's a stunning reality. Let me give us six passages of scripture and then five closing thought sentences. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. From the Sermon on the Mount, consider this in light of our text for today. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 24, 9. Jesus says to the disciples, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. John three nineteen. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. John 15, verses 18 and 25. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. But the word that is, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Romans 1, 29 to 31, describing our world. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. By the way, all of these are Christ on the cross as well in the scene. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Wow, that's the scene on the cross. And lastly, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
With those in mind, and the text in mind, let me try and bring some personal application into this. Five statements. Number one, we live in a contemptuous world. Have you noticed that? We live in a contemptuous world. Ever since sin came in, it's been a contemptuous world. The text tells us that. The verses I just read tell us that. Romans 3 tells us that. All have sinned. There is no one righteous. No, not one. And then add this, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Just listen as I read. This is so follows with Romans 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And whenever I read that in my Bible, I like insert crud right there. Because let me read this again, because I have a hard time with this. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having appearance of godliness but denying its power. Man, Pastor Doug, you are bumming me out. Now, listen, in the reality of things, we need to understand that we are so shocked when we realize this is not heaven. And the truth of the matter is, is you and I wake up pretty much every day kind of bent in our thinking that somehow this place is heaven until we grab our phone, see the news, and how everybody's hating everybody. But we live in a contemptuous world. That's the world that we live in, in this time of redemptive history. So what do we do as people living in a contemptuous world? Statement number two, when there is contempt, love. When there is contempt, love. Matthew 22. One of the leaders comes up to Jesus, hey Jesus, can you summarize like the most important command of scripture? And Jesus is like, game on, I can. And he says, Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Oh, by the way, he doesn't end there because that kind of love shows itself. He can't leave it with just that one statement. No, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Oh, by the way, and love others as well. By the way, that's not a suggestion. That's not a request. That is a command. 1 Corinthians 13 Paul essentially saying, coming off of 1 Corinthians 12, which is talking about the body and the gifts of the body, essentially he's kind of saying, hey Corinthians, you can be all wired up, you can be all fired up about your God-given spiritual gifts of tongue speaking or wisdom uttering or theological knowing or mercy serving or miracle making or administrative leading. You can be all fired up about that, chapter 13, but if you are not love pouring out, you are like an annoying noise. That's pretty hard. That's pretty harsh. But Paul's even coming along and adding on what Christ has said. Listen, we are to be people that love people. And we are wired to love ourselves too much. 
And our world says you need to love you more. Hey, I want to love you enough to say you don't need to love you more. You need to love the Lord and others more. That's where it's at. That's the command. That's the call. When there is contempt of love, man, that's hard. By the way, loving people sometimes means like Paul when he makes uh, his, his demand that he's like, no, you can't take me in, in like this. No, I'm, I demand my right to be seen by Caesar. Sometimes loving in a contemptuous world can look like boldly confronting the Pharisees like Jesus did. And sometimes loving a contemptuous world looks like Jesus hanging on the cross in silence while all the hatred flies. We live in a contemptuous world when there is contempt love. And third, I think this is good to bring it in at this point in time, the gospel is good news. It's good news. Listen, the gospel is not legalism news. The gospel is not BLMing news. The gospel is not don't think news. The gospel is not burdening news, and the gospel is not angry news. I hope you don't interpret my passion as anger. Please interpret my passion as excitement. Friends, the gospel is good news. It's the best news ever. Here's the bad part of the news. The bad part of the news is all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, but if it's left at that, that is not the gospel. The gospel is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as many as received him, to them he gave right to become children of God. That's the gospel. And parents, can I remind us, as you're uh, raising your children, they need to see the good news. Not just the obey news. But by the way, kids, did you hear in the text twice? It said one of the things in the last days children will be disobedient of their parents? The gospel is good news, friends. Let's be a kind of people that bring it as such. It is awesome, perfect, marvelous news. Uh, uh, Randy Alcorn in his book, Happiness, trying to bring a biblical definition of happiness, he says this, oh, I love this. Eden was right side up, but the fall turned the world upside down. Ironically, when you flip an already upside-down world, you turn it right-side up. Someone needs to do a sermon series kind of with that idea. Hey, listen, do you you hear? When God created us, we were right-side up with him. We were in the right place. Sin came along, and we got turned upside-down with the Lord. What does the gospel do? The gospel turns lives upside-down, which makes them right-side up. What we're trying to do is we're trying to bring the good news of the Bible to a contemptuous world and let them know that their lives can be turned upside down so that they're right side up with the Lord. Let's turn it upside down to bring them right side up. Have fun with that. Last two statements and we're finished. Lives are complex, the gospel is not. 
Lives are complex. The gospel's not. The two dudes hang on the cross next to Jesus. I don't know their full stories. But I do know this about them. Their lives were complex. And by the way, so is my life and so is your life. And the longer I've been around ministry and the longer I've been doing ministry, sometimes when we are doing ministry with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family, with our church, sometimes we can think that everybody's lives are quite simple and the gospel is very complex. It's the opposite. Lives are quite complex, friends. There's a lot of history, a lot of things, a lot of hurts, a lot of turmoil, a a lot of things going on in people's lives. And everybody is not an A or a B. Lives are complex. But know this, in that the gospel is not complex. It is a simple gospel to complex lives to bring them to know Christ. Just remember that, think on that. And lastly, reminder, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, we plant, we water, only God gives the growth. One of the things that's been happening in recent decades with church ministry as churches, uh, the whole large church thing has gotten becoming more a new dynamic, is one of the things out of that is people begin to start thinking that they're the ones who made that happen. And that's a lie. Only God does that. And that'll help keep me humble, us humble. By the way, in it all, parents with your children, don't you want to just go in and rewire their heart to bypass and not do all the mistakes you and I did when we were their ages? Have you noticed how you try and try and try and yet you can't? Have you ever noticed that? Hey, here's why. Because you don't have the ability to rewire your children. Only God can do that. But you plant the gospel, you water the gospel, you bring them the good news of the gospel, you love them through with it, and you pray your living heart out for them because you know it is only the Spirit of God through the Word of God that your children can come to know God and live for God. We live in a contemptuous world where there is contempt love. The gospel is good news. Lives are complex. The gospel is not. We plant, we water. Only God gives the growth. Father, thank you so much for the truth of uh, you, the Son, coming and hanging on the cross in our place. Lord Jesus, thank you. And even the example we see in just these few verses of all this noise, all this contempt being hurled at you, And yet you still, out of love and obedience to the Father, out of love for mankind that you created, Colossians 1, you're paying the price for sin. And Lord, we struggle to be more like you. I ask that we would kind of keep that image in our mind this week of you on the cross bearing the burden that we should have received and in love and in your grace. You loved a contemptuous world. More of that in us, I pray, Lord. Give us wisdom to do that and be that. In your name I pray, amen.